Uh, turn, please, again in your Bibles to Romans 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 8 to 15. Verses 8 to 15. Next week we'll be looking, God willing, at those uh, wonderful uh, verses which speak of the, the uh, confidence Paul has in the Gospel because it's the power of God. But here he is speaking of his affection for the Roman church. And the church has a hard time of it these days. Uh, You have heard, and I'm pretty well sick of hearing people who say that uh, they are not into what is called organised religion, by which they usually mean the church. Um, Very often it goes along with a a claim to have a private faith. Uh, Commentators continually tell us that people are turned off by the church, but they are... Uh, intrigued still by Jesus and, and that's is supposed to encourage us well the church it has to be acknowledged is sometimes her own worst enemy and when you read some of the, the, the publicity that the church generates uh, it's perhaps not surprising that there's so much negativity towards the church uh, we've had in, in uh, recent weeks the uh, report into abuse in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the study group under uh, Reverend Andrew McClelland. And uh, one, of the, one of the people who gave testimony into that report, uh, she reported some horrible experiences and finished saying, I still believe in God, but I no longer have anything to do with the church. So there's a lot of bad publicity. We might say, well, that's the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, we are the free church of Scotland. It's got nothing to do with us. But folk out there don't generally make that distinction. They hear the church is untrustworthy. The church is responsible for abuse. And then, of course, we look at our own backyard and we have to acknowledge that uh, we uh, have generated some pretty unpleasant publicity with acrimonious disputes and splits and so on. And one consequence of uh, the low view that society takes of the church is it's also uh, an impact within the church itself. Uh, the Christians who make up the church today tend to have uh, a lower view of the church uh, than we ought to. Uh, for example, there is the, the very individualistic approach that people have to the church. The church is here to provide for my needs. And I plug into the church as and when it suits me. Uh, the regular Christian soldier that could be relied upon at uh, two nights of worship on a Sunday in the prayer meeting is a, a rare person now in the church in most places. And then alongside an individualism within the church, there is also increasingly a failure to recognize the, the privilege of, of what was called being under the care of the leadership of the church, uh, being under the care of Locally, uh, the eldership, the Kirk session, or at the wider level, under the care of the presbytery. So we suffer from a low view of the church. And we desperately need to recover a biblical appreciation uh, of the church. And we need to remember that, that the church, for all her faults, is beloved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus loved the church And he gave himself for the church to purify her from all spot and blemish. 
And if Jesus loves the church and we love Jesus, then we should love his church too. And here in these verses from 8 to 15, we have sight of someone who loved the church. Paul loved the church. And he loved, in particular here, the church at Rome. That affection for the church at Rome is self-evident. And the remarkable thing is that Paul himself hadn't, he hadn't founded the church at Rome and he hadn't even visited the church in Rome. In fact, he tells us that although he would like to visit the church in Rome, he's actually not even moving in the direction of Rome. He's going to be moving in the other direction because he's on his way to Jerusalem with a gift for the people there who have suffered from a famine. So it's remarkable uh, that this man uh, who didn't found the church and hasn't been there has such an affection for it. It raises the question, of course, how was a church brought into being? And... Uh, it seems likely that the church in Rome reflects something of the mobility of people within the Roman Empire. We know that in Acts 2, in the day of Pentecost, there were Romans at Pentecost. Uh, we're told in Acts 2 that amongst all of the nations that were mentioned, there were visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. So you can imagine that these people from Rome... Uh, were converted in Jerusalem and returned there and would be part of that fledgling church. And then there was also the, the, the feeding in of people who had been converted uh, by Paul's other missionary journeys, uh, people who were maybe converted in, in uh, Asia Minor or other places and moved towards Rome because Rome was a magnet. It was the centre uh, of all things. It was where things were happening. So people were drawn to Rome. Priscilla and Aquila uh, make an, an interesting study uh, because you can trace their, their movements uh, in the book of Acts. And they, they were uh, Italians, they were in Rome, and they got kicked out of Rome under Emperor Claudius, uh, who issued an edict expelling uh, the Jews. Uh, they went to Corinth, and Paul met them there, and they traveled with him on his, summer, on, on his journey, and now they are back. In Rome, So there was this mobility. There was an, uh, uh, people who had been converted elsewhere had come to Rome. And now there is a church in Rome. Possibly there are several churches in Rome. They were meeting in homes in Rome, including Priscilla and Aquila's home. And Paul, having given us this brief summary of his gospel in verses 1 to 6, now goes on to express his appreciation for these people. And we learn four things uh, in these verses. Four things which are true of every gospel church. Four things which are true of the church. Four things which ought to make us appreciate and love the church more than perhaps we do. Uh, first of all, it is supremely through the church that God is glorified. It's the first truth of the church. Secondly, uh, the church is built up by prayer and proclamation. Thirdly, the church is a place of mutual encouragement. And fourthly, the church is the place into which people of all kinds of backgrounds are built, are brought together. First of all then, the church is the place 
through which God is glorified supremely. Paul says, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Uh, the verb reported there is, is a pretty weak word, weak word to translate what's going on here. Uh, the, it's translating a word which is related, uh, it's got its root, the same uh, word which we use for evangelize. Uh, and so the, the, the idea is of a proclamation. Their faith is being proclaimed. Their faith is being evangelized throughout the world. It was making waves in the known world. Now, I believe that the people were talking about the church in Rome for two reasons. First of all, uh, it was news of them was spreading rapidly for the very fact that there was a church in Rome at all. It was a wonderful fact that there was a body of God's people in Rome. Rome was the capital of the empire. It was a place of prestige, a place of power and influence. Uh, you could go to Rome and see wonderful buildings. Uh, the treasures of conquered peoples had been concentrated in Rome. Uh, it was a great sight. However, it was also a very dark place, uh, not least because of the cruelty of the people. Imagine a, a community that derives its uh, entertainment from uh, going and watching people being killed, either in gladiatorial contests or simply being thrown to wild animals. There was a viciousness about Roman society. And there was also a darkness, the darkness associated with the religions that were practiced in Rome. Made this a place uh, where it was a surprise, but a wonderful surprise to hear that at last in Rome, this powerful but dark, dark place, there was a light because the gospel of Jesus Christ had been received and people were gathering to worship the risen Jesus as a church. It was good news that there was a church there. But the news had spread abroad not simply because there were now people who labelled themselves Christians in Rome. It was much more than that. Uh, today, uh, a sizable proportion still of people in, in Scotland label themselves Christians. But it doesn't mean very much. It's just a box that's ticked very often. But when Paul speaks about receiving the gospel, he, call, he speaks about calling uh, men and women to the obedience of faith. So this was a church that was marked by a change of lifestyle. It was a, a, a community that evidenced the changing power of the gospel. Now it's in the church, it's in the interrelationships that people who are new creations in Christ have that the power of God is seen most fully, far more than uh, in isolated individuals. People look on as people who are in the church relate to one another, care for one another, uh, work together, are able to overlook their differences. Uh, the people outside look on the church and see here is a group of people whose unity can't be explained by the fact that they have the same background 
or the same uh, recreational interest. There's something uh, going on here that we can't explain humanly. There is something of God here that can't be denied. And it's in the interaction of the people within the church that God's transforming power is seen most fully. God is glorified in the church in a way uh, that goes beyond the individual. And that is what we have in the, in the, the New Testament. Paul says in Ephesians 3.10 of the importance of the church in glorifying God. His intent was now was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. No, not just locally, but he says, known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Through the church, God gets glory. People here of what's going on in the church and give thanks to God. Up in Burghead on the Murray Coast, there's a small free church that's been struggling uh, in recent years, recent past. God is doing great things there. Uh, there's a young man who's gone to be uh, the supply preacher there and he's uh, come with his, his wife who's from Murrayshire. The Lord had laid a burden on his heart uh, because of his family connection on that part of Murrayshire, and he upsticked, up, up, he, he left uh, his home church down in Sheffield, a 900 member uh, even evangelical Anglican church, and he's pursuing studies for the ministry while he seeks to build up the church in Burghead. And not only that, but the, the senior vicar, the senior minister at this church, has encouraged others to join him. So that others have come to be part of a little group who are bringing the gospel to people in that village in Marishar who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of the month, next Sunday, uh, they, they've been advertising uh, an invitation service uh, to the whole of the community that people might come and inquire about the gospel. And we hear that at a distance and we're encouraged that the Lord is doing great things and that he is moving uh, men and women uh, to take steps of faith to his glory. It's through the church that God gains glory. Someone was mentioning in our Coatbridge Home Group, a little incident that I didn't really know of uh, at, at the induction here, my induction here a few years ago. Some money was found outside the church building and very clearly it was somebody that had been at the service would have dropped that £10 note. And there was a, a discussion as to what should be done with it and one of our elders uh, was quite insistent that the money should go to the police station because that was the right thing to do. It would be a lot easier simply to put it into the, the offering box. But it went to the, the police uh, station, and I'm sure that the police officer at the time would have been a bit uh, bemused. Why? Why on earth was this being done? Nobody would have been any of the wiser had it not gone into the church accounts. Three months later, of course, it did come back because nobody claimed it. But the point is this. 
that the fact that there was a church that had a standard of integrity and honesty and that wasn't clinging on to money, even although nobody would know about it, was registering to the community something of the, the perfections of the God we serve, even in that small, almost incidental way. God is glorified in the decision-making of the church as a people. He's glorified in a way beyond uh, the actions of individuals. And along with, with Paul, we love the church because that is the case. And wouldn't it be great if uh, it, it was said of, of our church, Hope Church, Hope Bridge, that reports of your faith have spread throughout the world. It was noised abroad. That, what would we, what would we love to be said? That here there, there are people who love one another and care for one another and put one another the other beyond their own interests. Here are a people who are people of integrity and honesty and can be relied upon. Here are people who, who love the Lord and love to share the Lord. Here are people who love Cote Bridge, who love their neighbours and who are practical in their Christianity, who make a difference to the community around them. Your faith is reported throughout the world. Secondly, we notice here about the church that it, it grows by preaching and praying. The church is brought into existence by the word of God, watered by the prayers of God's people. It's brought into existence in that way, and it grows also in that way. Paul describes his work in these terms. God, whom I serve with my whole heart, in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And what I want to emphasize here particularly are, are the prayers of Paul. He hadn't been able to preach, you see, in, in Rome. He hadn't been able to visit them yet. He wanted to do that. But he had been an essential part of the building up of the ch church here because he always prayed for them. They were always in his prayers. Now, that's why when, when it comes to the, 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 the end chapters, we have this list of names. And I imagine that they would have been jotted down in Paul's prayer journal and that he would have uh, greedily looked for reports of the individuals who, are, who were at Rome that he could pray for them. He saw prayer as being vital to the work of the church. Now it's very easy, I think, for us to be two-faced when it comes to the place of prayer in the church. No Christian ever says that prayer is unimportant. We don't do that. But by our actions, we can betray the fact that we think it perhaps is of lesser importance than it is. Uh, think of the way we speak of uh, prayer warriors. We speak of a prayer warrior, and uh, whenever you hear that expression, there's a certain mental image that you have, isn't there? It's, it's always somebody that's old or bedridden. She is a prayer warrior. She can't get to church, but she can pray. 
And the assumption is that everybody else is going to be busy doing the kind of important things, the, the activities, the, the evangelism, and they're relying upon the prayer warrior or prayer warriors. And so we think of activity, activism, as being important and praying being that, that important thing for certain people, perhaps, in the church. <coughs> now, Paul was a great activist. He was no ivory tower theologian. He didn't lock himself away in a study and, and produce these marvellous epistles removed from the, the, the stream, the concourse of, of human activity. He was out there. He was involved in people's lives. He was a preacher of the gospel where people were. He was adept at proclaiming the gospel in culturally relevant ways. He went into the, the what were the equivalents of the, the coffee houses and the, the, uh, the, the social hubs of, of his day. And he could speak to a Gentile farmer in one way and to a Greek philosopher in another way and commend the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knew what it was to get beaten up for the gospel and imprisoned for the gospel and shipwrecked three times for, for the sake of the gospel. He was an activist and yet he would not have understood the idea that uh, you can emphasize one without the other. He was a man of prayer. His activity was shaped by his prayer life from the, from the time when the church set him apart with Barnabas after prayer and fasting. Paul watered all that he did with prayer. Prayer is God's way of building the church. There are things which God will only do through the prayers of his people. Prayer is God's way of demonstrating to people like us who are by nature activists that he is the worker. He is the one who is powerfully working out his purposes. And without him we can do nothing. And it's in the prayer meeting that we are most aware of that fact, that we're involved, we're bit players in God's great work. And the extent to which we make private and public prayer our priority is the extent to which we have any right to expect the Lord to bless us. Preaching or proclamation and prayer, like the two wings of a plane, it's not a case of choosing between one or the other. Both are essential. If the plane's going to fly, if the church is going to grow, uh, God's people should be mobilized. We really ought to have every member in the prayer meeting. That ought to be a kind of minimum expectation. And, well, we pray that God will move us to, to that point. Now, notice that there's an odd thing going on here, and that is that Paul draws our attention to the fact that one of his prayers, at least, has gone unanswered. It doesn't say it explicitly, but it's implied that he has been praying to go to Rome. He's been praying to visit Rome. He says he's planned several times. Paul would never have planned something without praying about it beforehand. But he has been prevented from going to Rome. What's going on here? This is uh, not just any 
body. This is the Apostle Paul. It's the Apostle Paul whose apostleship was testified by signs and wonders. Um, and yet God has said no on this occasion. And of course there was another occasion in regard to his thorn in the flesh, his, his uh, troubling condition that God uh, said no as well. And sometimes God's answer to our prayers is a straight no. We were thinking uh, earlier in, in the prayer meeting about how we need to uh, make the proviso in all our praying, your will be done. Sometimes we get it right and we're praying in God's will and other times we don't. And in, it's in God's mercy that he withholds uh, what we've asked for. It would not be to our, our good, to our blessing or the blessing of his kingdom. Another reason may be that God's timing is different from ours. And Jesus, in his parable of the persistent widow, uh, is encouraging people to carry on praying. Even when the answer isn't given immediately, we're not to give up. Uh, we're to keep on praying. Uh, God's time scale may be different to the time scale that we have. And as we pray, uh, we ourselves are changed. We will be made more patient, more focused on God, more persevering. God always has his purposes in that. And as we know uh, from the, this perspective of time, Paul did eventually get to Rome, but he arrived in Rome in very different circumstances from those that he had envisaged. He arrived in Rome as a prisoner. And as a result of his imprisonment, uh, the gospel penetrated even to the imperial household. So God may give us a, a green light. He may answer our prayers. He may give us an amber light. He may say that we're to wait a time. Or it may be a red light. He may say no. Gospel churches are built by people who are committed to prayer. Thirdly, gospel churches are places where we encourage one another. Paul tells uh, the Romans that he is eager to impart some spiritual uh, gift uh, to them to make them strong. He said he is eager to impart to them a charisma. A charisma. Uh, maybe that uh, it's possible that it might be a spiritual gift such as uh, tongues or prophecy that he's speaking of, uh, that's possible. Although usually when, when these are spoken of, these are sovereignly bestowed rather than through uh, an individual, even like Paul. Or maybe uh, a spiritual gift in the broader sense, such as the, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, love, joy, peace, and so on. But whichever it is, Paul goes on straight away uh, to qualify his desire to give them something uh, with the, the proviso that he also expects to be encouraged and strengthened by them. Uh, it will be a, a two-way street. Paul is not simply going to be the giver, but he is going to be the receiver also. It's a very uh, important principle, isn't it, that uh, in, in our fellowship together, uh, we should be mutual encouragers. Uh, I certainly have I've experienced that in, in, in every congregation I, I've been at. 
I've been in congregations when I have felt just a, a spiritual pygmy in, in the, the presence of some uh, mature, older Christians who uh, encouraged me beyond uh, any encouragement I might have given to them. And that is so right. It's right too on a, on a global scale when we think of the way that uh, the, the church can move from being a, a giving church, a, a church that's sending missionaries and giving. And then we come to the point when we are being enriched in return. One of the blessings today of being able to, to travel, how, how, how easy it is to travel and to go to, to lands uh, which maybe didn't have the gospel 100 years ago. And now the church is just vibrant. And you go there and you're so encouraged by that. And you come back thinking, oh, how wonderful the gospel is. How glorious our Savior is. How wonderful his church is. How, how varied it is. Mutual encouragement. So within the body of Christ, uh, we are ministering to one another. There are the formal ministries that go with uh, the role of, of, of uh, office in the church. Even there, uh, as with Paul, there's a mutual encouragement. Then every member ministry, everyone having a ministry of exhorting one another, encouraging one another, rebuking one another. Mutual encouraging, strengthening one another. And we do that because when we come together, uh, we are in training for mission. We can either think uh, wrongly of a Sunday being the, the last day of the week when after a week of labour we come and we, we simply soak, uh, we, we switch off, we relax. But of course Sunday is not in any sense the last day of the week, it's the first day of the week. It's the, the resurrection day and it's forward looking. We're going into a week, a week where uh, we'll meet with discouragement. We'll meet with people who've got no time for Christianity. Uh, where we have opportunities to share the gospel and, and we'll need faith in God to do that. And so we come to, to church and we find encouragement to be strong in the week that lies ahead. So we, we maybe come into to Sunday and we're feeling a bit down and tired. And through the, the word and through the presence of other Christians and through maybe a word or two that's spoken, a word of kindness or exhortation from somebody else, we're strengthened to go into the week. What a wonderful aspect of the church that is. The church as a place of encouragement in order to strengthening, in order to service. Friends, that's what we're here for this evening. Uh, to come under the word, to be meeting Jesus, to go into the world. And then, wonderfully, it's a place where uh, everybody, all kinds of people are brought together. Paul says, I am bound both to the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. The Greeks, uh, standing here for the intelligentsia, the, the, the wise of his day. And the non-Greeks is, is just a, a paraphrasing of a word, barbaroi, which would literally be barbarians. And they were called barbarians because to 
to the Greek or the Roman ear, what they, what they said, their languages sounded like bar, 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 bar. They were uncouth, uneducated. So they thought. And Paul is saying that all kinds of people uh, have an interest in the gospel and a place in the church. He says, whether you're sophisticated or not, whether you're a barbarian or not, uh, you, are, you have a, a place in the church. Whether you're a guardian reader or a son reader, uh, whether you enjoy yacht racing or greyhound racing, whatever your background, the church is a place where people of all backgrounds are brought together for the glory of God. And he speaks of being bound to these people, being bound to all types. And again, it's a, a, it's a pretty weak uh, rendering. Uh, really, it's he's in debt or he's obligated to all kinds, to the Greek and the barbarian. Because of what the gospel is, he, as a proclaimer of the gospel, he has got to discharge an obligation. This gospel, purchased at the cost of the blood of Jesus, is for all kinds of people, and we are to discharge our debt. And so there's a kind of, there's a, a burden upon Paul until he has proclaimed uh, to people who are uncouth, who are, who are barbarians, who've got no education, as well as to the, the Greek philosophers and the Areopagus. Think of it a wee bit like this. If, if you're given a gift to pass on to somebody else, you're under a debt. When I go to, uh, to when I make an, uh, my, my visit to the Karen, very often I, I'll be given money to take out to give to the, the, the folks in the, the refugee camp. And sometimes that can be a significant amount of money. Somebody gives money uh, for the care villa, for the, the landmine victims. It could be a substantial amount of money. And it's a responsibility. And I have that money. And I am obligated to the Karen people until I've discharged that debt, until it's been handed over. And if I were not to hand it over, I would be defrauding them because it has been given to me, not for myself, but for someone else. Paul is saying, I've been given the gospel, but it's to be proclaimed, it's to be given over. And unless I do that, I'm in their debt. I'm obligated to Greeks and to barbarians. Wonderful way of thinking, isn't it? That we should have... Uh, people of all kinds on our hearts. And it also means that we're never to think that the church is just for one kind of people. Now, it's easy to lapse into that way of thinking and to get cosy in church and to think that it's for uh, people who like me and the people that I like. Because when, when a church does that, then it's... it's uh, putting limits on, on God. It's restricting the, the, the function that the church has to give glory to God by uniting all kinds of people in the gospel. We should never think anybody is beyond the gospel because of what he's like. Because that's exactly the kind of person that God wants to see incorporated into his church to give him glory. What a, a wonderful attitude. The difference that someone has from you makes it possible that they may be the very person God is seeking to bring into his wonderful kaleidoscopic church. 
So, this is God's secret weapon for saving a lost world, the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus loves the church. And if we love Jesus, we must love his church. And it's a church that's not just made up of people like you, it's made up of people of all kinds. And we're under an obligation to go and tell them that there is a saviour suited to them and to invite them to come into a place of mutual encouragement where we're strengthened together, a people who are committed to prayer and to the proclamation of the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks for your wisdom uh, displayed in the church. Lord, may we never lose our love for her. May we feel keenly the reproach that falls upon her. And may we in this place, Lord, seek to be a people for your glory, who by the way we relate to one another, show the power of God and the wisdom of God. We ask this in Jesus' name.